0: Welcome to Darkness Dwells, episode 31. I am your host, Jason White. And this week, Michael and I, we continue our foray into our month-long themed November is Haunted. <laughs> so this week, uh, Michael and I, we talk about uh, the 1986 movie, House. And that was a lot of fun, not only to rewatch but to... Uh, to talk about it with Michael. Um, and I also decided that it would be a lot of fun to, uh, to listen to some more short start or short stories. Uh, and I ended up actually downloading a, uh, a novel. <laughs> so I, it's a short novel. So I split it up into three part. Actually, I didn't even have to split it up. I downloaded it from, uh, LibriVox.com. And, uh, so it's in the free domain and, uh, it comes in three parts. They're all roughly half an hour to 40 minutes. And, uh, so there's going to be one per episode for the rest of November. And it is the the story is The Canterville Ghost, and the writer is the great Oscar Wilde. So, uh, oh yeah, and it's read by, uh, a really <laughs> awesome gentleman by the name of David Barnes. He does an excellent job. So, uh, before we get into that though, how about, uh, I discuss first and tell you about our sponsor audible.com now go to uh, www.audibletrial.com slash darkness dwells where you can sign up for your free month-long membership and what that gets you is basically a uh, well you get a credit and a free credit and uh, with that credit you get an audiobook a free one and this uh is pretty cool because you create a, create a uh, a membership even if you decide not to uh stay with audible.com you can uh you can always come back and uh and get that book you get to keep that book because it stays in your library along with your membership now uh after the free month you get one credit per month uh you can also as that's around fifteen dollars, but you can also get a uh uh two credits per month, uh for something like twenty two dollars a month. And well that gets you two credits and each credit gets you one audiobook. So uh if you're into audiobooks at all, you know just how expensive they are, even in their uh digital format. Uh, nothing in digital format is much cheaper than the actual product itself, which is uh which is really disappointing. You think it would be uh, different, but it is not. <laughs> it's just uh, business for you, I guess, right? Anyway, so uh, I'm going to recommend from Audible.com, Whisper. And this is written by Michael Bray, and it's narrated by Matt Josdal. And the length of this one is 10 hours, and it's unabridged audiobook for you. So uh, here is the synopsis for this one. It was supposed to be a fresh start a place for Steve and Melody Sampson to begin a new life together, away from the noise and crime of the city. However, their new home an idyllic cottage nestled deep within the dense solitude of Oakwell Forest has a disturbing history, hidden for generation by the locals. There is evil in Hope House, and the cursed forest that surrounds it. Evil that has awakened after lying dormant for decades... And has terrifying plans for the young couple once you hear the whispers, it may already be too late now uh, this is a really cool book uh, I was I've been in uh, actual uh, I've been talking with Michael Bray over uh, the internet lately and uh, this is a good book I highly recommend it and we are going to listen to uh, a short sample of this audiobook right now.
1: The single-lane private road which led to the house snaked through the trees, and as it wound its way deeper into the depths of Oakwell Forest, it narrowed, so that eventually the overhanging canopy was close enough to brush against the roof of their blue Passat. As they neared their destination, The road had opened up onto a driveway of sorts, which then turned into the front yard area of the property. The house was set a little further back, behind an overgrown garden, abundant with weeds which, like the house itself, looked tired, unloved, and in some way forgotten. At the periphery of where the forest and the property boundaries began stood a rickety awning, that was miraculously still standing despite its dilapidated appearance. A sign hung limply from its underside. It bore just a single word, carved in an old, swirling script. Hope. Steve's hope, as he eyed the sagging, patchy roof and rotten window frames, was that it wouldn't cost a fortune to repair or to keep the place warm in the winter months, if they decided to make an offer on it at all. He supposed he could do a lot of the work himself, but by the obvious state of disrepair, evident even from some distance away, he could see it being more trouble than it was worth, and now understood why the asking price had been so low. A gust of wind made the trees whisper in unison, making him shudder involuntarily. It was certainly a unique selling point, a house in the middle of the forest. But as a city boy through and through, he wasn't quite sure that he was ready to make the huge leap from the concrete jungle to the literal one. The trees continued to sway, leaving models of diffused mid-morning sunlight shimmering across the ground. Melody turned to Steve and grinned, and he knew then, by the excitement which shone in her eyes, that he would be fighting an uphill battle to talk her out of making an offer on the place right there on the spot. He felt a pang of discomfort, a strange unease that stirred him as he looked beyond the house to the dense tangle of oaks and birches, seemingly stretching ever upwards in their quest for sunlight. He suddenly felt very small and insignificant. The estate agent, a greasy, bird-like fellow by the name of Donovan, saw Steve's discomfort, and with the graceful ease of a serpent "'slithered his way over and leaned in close, "'invading Steve's personal space. "'Don't worry about the trees. "'They just take a bit of getting used to,' he said, "'nodding towards where Steve was staring. "'The last couple who lived here were in this house "'for many happy years before they decided to sell up "'and move to Australia.' "'He flashed his wide, salesman grin. "'Steve didn't like Donovan.' "'and only hid his contempt for the horrible little man "'for the sake of Melody, who he loved more than anything. "'He chose not to respond "'for fear of putting the gangly idiot in his place, "'and without missing a beat, "'Donovan saw this as his signal to continue his pitch. "'It has everything a young couple could need, Mr. Sampson, "'and of course, needless to say, "'you won't have any noise from the neighbors.' "'Donovan said it with a chuckle, which he quickly killed when he saw that Steve wasn't joining in. He cleared his throat and reverted to what he knew, which appeared to be grinning at Steve with a mouth that appeared to contain too many teeth. Melody called out from behind the house, her disembodied voice carrying on the wind towards them. Steve, come take a look at this! She yelled excitedly. Donovan rolled his eyes in a clumsy attempt to build some rapport. Two guys together, best pals to the end? Steve's disdain for the man moved up a notch as he walked around to the back of the house to look for his wife. The rear of the property was bathed in blazing sunshine, causing him to squint as he rounded a corner. Donovan had produced some cheap-looking sunglasses from the pocket of his even cheaper-looking suit, which only served to add to the general ridiculousness of his appearance. Steve saw the reason for Melody's excitement and felt a dull gnawing in his gut he couldn't quite explain. Maybe it was just anxiety, or the fact that he was out of his comfort zone, but he couldn't quite put his finger on what it was.
0: Alright, so there you have it. Whisper by michael bray now uh, before we continue on to the show i just want to mention that i really really love the way michael bray uses foreshadowing in his uh, stories it's it's expertly done and uh, <laughs> you have to read this book or listen to it to know what i'm talking about all right so how about we uh, dig into the show now we will start so by doing the news and new releases Okay, before before I get into any of the uh, news, I just want to say rest in peace to Gunnar Hansen. He passed away, I believe, after a battle with cancer earlier this week. And uh, if you don't know who he is, well, uh, I'm surprised you don't know (laughs) by now because it's been a while since this has uh, come to light. Uh, He was uh, was Leatherface and... um, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original uh, movie, and he will forever be immortalized by that alone. He's been in a few other movies, but uh, <laughs> his portrayal of Leatherface is uh, legendary. And uh, I didn't know it, but apparently, and I don't know if it's true, but apparently, there is a bit of a bit of a, a, bit of a, a fight amongst. Uh, it's probably a friendly fight but a, fr- <laughs> a, a bit of a battle between the uh the different people who've played leatherface as to who uh who's the best at playing leatherface and i would have to go with gunner hansen to be honest with you he's uh his is like i just said his portrayal is just it's awesome all right so um the next thing i want to talk about is uh, something i wasn't too sure i should bring up because it's it's a bit of a controversy and I don't believe that I really have any weight to throw around as a writer or a podcaster but it, it's something I do want to talk about because it annoys me and it always has annoys, annoyed me I've talked about this on the podcast before and it's uh it's the uh the World Fantasy uh award uh they want to remove the lovecraft image from their award statue now they they want to do this it would be okay if they were just doing this just to make a change but they're doing this and they're quite open about it because lovecraft was a racist now i'm <laughs> i'm really sick of and tired of hearing about this every time i have a discussion with people uh, about a Lovecraft story, and usually it's online. The whole racist issue pops up. Now, it, there's a good reason why it keeps popping up is because his uh, Lovecraft's racism uh, very often leaked, and or maybe not very often, a few times it leaked into his uh, into his fiction. And uh, so, you know, I I am completely it's it really is unforgivable but there's a there's there's a reason why this annoys me it's because lovecraft comes from a completely different world than the one we live in right now um, he he was raised by racists first of all um, both his parents mother and father both died in a, in, in insane asylums uh his grandfather was a racist, and uh, his grandfather named his cat uh, <laughs> a very racist uh, term. It was a black cat, so you can uh, you can only imagine what the cat's name was. <laughs> it's a terrible, oh, it's, it's just just terrible. And this this cat's name made it into uh, uh, the rats in the walls. Uh, Lovecraft. It was his one and only cat but he loved that cat and so it's remembered fondly <laughs> in rats in the walls it just has a horrible horrible name but you know like i said back in like this was back in uh what turn of uh the of of uh, the 1900s the 18th century um racism was a hell of a lot more accepted back then and it's not accepted now, and it's understandable why it's not accepted now. But I, I don't think we can punish people for what they believed in a hundred years ago, because uh, times change, and we got to remember it's it's ignorant to condemn people for something that was accepted a long time ago. As Caitlin R. Kiernan said in her blog, if we're going to attack Lovecraft for his beliefs, when do we start attacking Edgar Allan Poe or Bram Stoker? Um, Edgar Allan Poe did things like marry his fourteen-year-old cousin. Not only is uh, not only is uh, an- incest unacceptable today, uh, so is uh, a thirty-year-old man going after his fourteen-year-old. Uh, Or after a 14 year old period, that would be considered uh, child abuse, (laughs) sexually. uh, Sexual child abuse. (laughs) You would be a, uh, you know, a predator, a sexual predator, and condemned for the rest of your life. So, where does it end? I mean, back then, in 18. uh, whenever, it was like early 1800s when Edgar Allan Poe did that. Uh, it was it was completely fine for him to do so then. It was accepted. It, nobody even looked down upon it, as far as I know. So <clears throat> Bram Stoker, as I uh, mentioned, also I, I believe he was a racist as well. Like it, 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 we call it racism now, but even I, back then, I doubt it even had that name. Uh, it was just something that was common. It, it was accepted and it's unaccepted today, understandably so, but we really got to get past what people believed in, in the past and just accept it for what it is and, and be glad that we have moved on and learned different things. So yeah, change your statue if you want. That's your just decision, but don't change it because Lovecraft was a racist. I'm getting really sick and tired of hearing about Lovecraft being a racist. We all know he was a racist, and so were other authors of the time and earlier. It would be much more understandable if we condemned an author from today who was racist or, uh, or even sexist. Even sexist, definitely sexist. Uh, there's different levels of sexism, <laughs> but there's different levels of racism too. So, um, but yeah, anything that's hating a minority—that's uh, just hateful. Generally, it's unacceptable. But, but it's more acceptable if you can think about where these people, who are long dead, come from. So let's move on and just. Let's just move on. <laughs> Alright, so uh next up I have uh The Green Inferno that um uh, uh oh, shit. Eli Roth, uh his movie. Um it hits blue it just it was just out in theaters uh a little while ago. Michael uh Darkness Dwells co host, he went and saw it and he said he was disappointed. I have yet to see it because, unfortunately, as far as I know, I kept looking for it, but it never seemed to show up in my theater, so I never got to see it. But um, it hits Blu-ray and DVD this January, um, which is really cool because uh, I want to see it. I want to see. W- I also want Michael's reaction to it. There's a actually a blog post about it on the Darknet, where Darkness dot com website. Uh, you should check it out. Because <laughs> well, his uh, his blog post is uh, a little more tame, I think, than what he said to me over Facebook Messenger. Uh, he was he was kind of angry, a little at least. But uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it still. Who knows? Um, I've heard both camps people saying it's good and others saying it's shit. So I don't know exactly what until uh i uh, actually see it myself um the special features on this will be uh commentary with co-writer director and producer eli roth producer nicholas lopez and stars lorenza izo aaron burns kirby bliss blanton and daryl sabera all right so that's all i have for movie news uh and also, there was that little bit of a, a bit of a literature uh, awards anyway news. Now, how about we move on to the uh, horror literature new releases? Okay, so from Permuted Press, uh, we have uh, a few releases. Um, we have the Imaginary Fire by DJ Goodman. The Cabin Prophecy, which is from the Lolito Trilogy, book number three. And that's by Toby Tate. And we also have The War for Mare, which is Fall of Man, book three, by Jacqueline Druga. And last but not least, (laughs) we have uh, Never Let Me Leave, the Melissa Allen Trilogy, book numero duzole. From Severed Press, we have. Uh, we do have a release from them this week, and it is Megalodon Rising, a deep sea thriller, and that's by Alex Layborn. And from uh, Dark Regions Press, this week we have uh, Like a Dead Man Walking uh, by William F. Nolan and Jason V. Brock. And uh, I think, actually, I missed something from these guys from October 30th, right before Halloween. Uh, it was Terra Train 2 by James Ward Kirk and Stephen Cooney. That looks really cool. And from October 28th, there is Gothic Blue Book 5, the cursed edition. And this is by uh, Cynthia Peleo. And Maria Alexander. I don't know what's going on with the two names on each. Uh, This could be, I guess, uh, anthologies. But you should check that out. I really love the the cover for uh, Gothic Blue Book 5. It's got a haunted house on it, which is uh, very fitting for (laughs) for our uh, themed month. But it's just absolutely beautiful. I love it. All right, so that's all I could find this week for November tenth, two thousand and fifteen, and the new releases. There are some earlier ones there too, I mentioned. So uh check those out. go on to Amazon.com or your uh, wherever you like to get your ebooks and or uh, uh, physical books and uh, take a look, see if you can't find one or two of them. All right, so now we are going to take a small break where we will listen to some important messages. And when I return, I will have Michael with me, and we will discuss the 1986 movie, House.
2: Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts, describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey.
3: Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films.
2: Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible
0: work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic
2: storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott.
1: Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood.
2: (laughs) This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com.
0: Should I have said Hammer Pants?
2: 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. What happened was true. Bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America... midnight on a tropical island. A beautiful young
1: girl's long hair streams against the coral reef. Her beautiful body is caressed by the tide. Suddenly a decayed hand rises up and blood-drenched jaws move to bite her. The living dead walk again. Zama. They are decayed. They are missing from their graves. They live and hunger for your flesh. There is no place you can hide. Zombie. You are what they eat. No one under 17 will be admitted. Zombie.
3: This is a house where no one should live. Roger Cobb has come here alone. But no one is ever alone. In the house.
2: Leave while you can. No!
4: Sandy.
3: Horror has found a new home. House. Enter. At your
4: own risk.
0: Hey, Michael, how's it going?
4: It's great. It's been a little while since I talked to you, but life has been good. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, that's an inside joke that nobody else is going to guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been so long. Uh,
4: I almost forgot how to do this. Yeah, I forgot what your <laughs> voice
0: sounded like. <laughs> no, uh, actually, uh, this is uh, probably, sep- well, it is going to be separated for, for everyone else, but uh, for us, this is, we just talked about Housebound. <laughs> yes, and House and now, Housebound we're doing. Yes, so a little yeah, I was theme. Just, I was a just theme for say. you people
4: for the months of November.
0: Yes, it's it's another horror comedy. And uh, it sort of fits in with what Michael wanted to do, but I sort of uh, raped <laughs> <laughs> <He sure laughs> and <did. laughs> changed, and and changed into uh, haunted November, um,
4: which is it, a much more interesting theme than what I came up with.
0: No, thinking, i thought your theme really was good, <laughs> honestly. But to be honest with you, I kind of forgot about the whole that. I, because of the movies that uh, I was like, okay, how about we do House and and uh, you know we were talking about movies and I kind of forgot about the comedy ele- element and uh, I was just thinking about the haunted house aspect of it all, <laughs> and so I thought I was still going with your idea when I mentioned uh, you know the haunted house like instead of uh, doing just one episode, how about we do a, a whole month on the thing?
4: And, and I was uh, and I was thinking in my mind, but. But there's so much more better movies to talk about than than these. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> for
4: sure. But you know what? Taking now that uh, we talked about about Housebound and thinking about House, these are uh, it, it is pretty good. You know, I I do love haunted houses. You know, if, yeah. if you you don't know that about me, that is my favorite specific subgenre of horror is the haunted house, and it can scare the crap out of me time and time again. Oh, I just something about that. That gets me. That's my little pressure point.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, I love Haunted House movies, too. There was a while, about a year, two years ago, maybe three, I don't know. It was about two years ago, I think, where I, I felt really drained about the whole thing because of uh, a lot of the movies that are coming out right now. <laughs> like, uh, like uh, you know, like uh, the Con- well, The Conjuring was good. I'm thinking more, I guess, of Insidious... Yeah. yeah, especially part 2. Part Insidious part 2 really uh disappointed me because I was getting to the point where, you know, um you're you're watching this this movie about a haunted house and it's always the same fucking thing. Like uh the ghost first starts turning lights off and on or or making creepy sounds in the dark. I mean, you can make it creepy, but after a while you got to wonder what the ghost's intentions are.
4: Yeah, Be, and because, I always wonder why they wait until night. Why do they always wait until night? Yeah, and I've said that on this show before. That that a movie gets extra points whenever they do a little bit of haunting during the day, because yeah. that that still doesn't get done very often. You know, somehow uh-huh. the the spirit world knows when we turn off the lights. I don't yeah. really get it.
0: And why do they always start off with the small stuff? Right, it's what, always are,
4: the small stuff. Yeah, yeah, like like, like maybe it's they feed off our fear a little bit they start yeah that must be it I think I I just heard a ghost in the other room what the heck was that (laughs) well I'm not going to go check it out
0: (laughs) no I'm just going to stay right here only people in movies do that
4: I know (laughs) Uh, and and the question who's there like like I really want an answer you
0: know yeah um So House is from uh, 1986 And it was directed by Steve Miner Uh, What else has he done?
4: Let's see Steve Miner I have that written down Um, He directed Friday the 13th parts 2 and 3 And Halloween H20 Yep. Um, And talking about the Friday the 13th Sean S. Cunningham produced House from 1986 So it's got some big names
0: so you got like a a partnership kind of going there, yeah, and uh, it was written by uh, Fred decker and Ethan Wiley. Now it starts uh, starts, yeah, stars William Cat, Kay Lenz, and uh, George went. Um, <laughs> uh, George went's awesome in this movie, but he uh, is
4: awesome. I love when he does um uh, he I mean he's kind of comic relief in this yeah, movie, but he's done it. some some horror. And, and some stuff. Before. Yeah. I have written my notes, uh Pelts, but I believe that was actually Meatloaf in Pelts and not George Wendt, but...
0: Yeah. And, of course, uh, William Cat. Uh, he's uh, from Cary. Yes. You, you probably know him more from Cary. Uh, I don't know if House ever got, like, a really big audience or not.
4: I don't know. I think so. I seem to remember that there was, you know a little bit of, you know, buzz. Yeah. Back in the day. Um I do I have to mention William Katt that I know him. I don't know if you you ever got this show, but there is a TV show called The Great American Hero and it starred William Katt as it's this yeah. guy that had, you know, the superhero abilities, but he wasn't very good at them. <laughs> and he was like when he flew, he kind of stumbled, flew, he was like all <laughs> over the place. He was always really awkward and it was, it was a great show. I watched it with my mom all the time. That's so, William Katz one of those people that when I see his, his curly blonde head, I always get a little, a little nostalgic. And, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll stay tuned a little bit more than, than I would maybe otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen that show, but I, I kind of want to go back and watch it. <laughs> sounds funny. Um, now, IMDb's uh, synopsis for this film is actually quite short. Uh, but it pretty much rounds up the movie. <laughs> uh, a troubled writer moves into a haunted house after inheriting it from his aunt.
4: <laughs> oh, that's a,
0: that, yeah, that's so deep, right? Ah, well, there it is in the movie.
4: So tune yeah. in next week. Oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's the movie. Thanks, folks. <laughs> no, actually, uh, to give it a better <laughs> synopsis, um, his aunt actually commits suicide. She hangs herself, and we see this <laughs> from the view of uh, her grocer who's delivering her groceries to her, <laughs> and he finds the body. And so so uh, we have our uh, uh, William, William Cat, who plays uh, uh, Roger Cobb. He's a famous writer, and uh, he moves in. And uh, what he finds is that this house is haunted for sure, but it's not necessarily a ghost or anything. It's more like a uh, another dimension or something like that. And this dimension wants you to kill yourself so it can basically eat your soul. And uh, so basically the rest of the movie is him trying to battle this. And not only that, but his his uh, fucked up past because he's a... He's, uh, uh, He's a survivor of the Vietnam War, and also his son went missing, and went missing within the house itself, so...
4: There's a lot going on.
0: There is a lot going on, and uh, he's also uh, newly divorced, which I found kind of strange, because when you see them interact with each other, they don't, there's nothing there really for... You don't get the idea that they're divorced. It's almost like they're actually together.
4: I almost thought the opposite. That there was, there's really no chemistry there. You know, oh, I really? just, yeah. Um, it was kind of, well, the whole movie sort of suffers, quote unquote. I don't know if you could say that. But that that whole mid '80s kind of, you know, there's there's maybe a certain lack of, you know, a lot of well-developed characters yeah. <laughs> in, in like a, a certain amount of movies back then. I just didn't, I didn't see them together at all besides the fact that we were told that they were divorced
0: yeah well I I just thought they were too friendly with each other um, to be you know divorced I I guess it's because their son went missing in his aunt's house or something like that but I don't know it just it didn't ring true but then again like you said this is an 80's horror film so uh, you don't necessarily like this isn't like Housebound where the characters are uh, you know, well developed they're just sort of I don't know. They're they're there for a purpose. Yeah, very and the much purpose so. is often for like sort of like a joke, because the whole movie is in in essence a bit of a joke, and it I'm pretty sure it's meant to be. It's I would say it's self aware in that sort of you know tongue in cheek. This is uh, <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous, but let's go with it type of. Uh,
4: yeah, there's a lot of about. that. I do wonder if, I mean, uh, like. That's true. It, it is a horror comedy, but now in 2015, I wonder how much extra is, is inferred now that it's such an old movie that there's just, like, some of the effects are just so poor that yeah. maybe at the time that wasn't something that was supposed to be comedic about it, but now it <laughs> is. Yeah.
0: Um,
4: it's, it's almost kind of hard to, to know what the intended vibe was 100%. Yeah because it's I think it comes off as sillier now than maybe it was supposed to be but yeah definitely silliness is inherent in it
0: well I saw this movie when I was like uh, in my early teens and I I absolutely loved this film back then I watched it me too times. me too and uh when watching it again like I watched it about six months ago and then I watched it again uh last week uh for this episode <laughs> and uh I don't know. It lost its appeal, obviously, because I'm older now, and but I remember it being a lot more fun, and I remember those effects uh, that you mentioned being a little more creepy, uh, yeah. a little more scarier back then. Yeah, but I now
4: you're
0: so. now you're right. Uh, like because of how we've evolved with doing even practical effects, uh, you have this monster coming at you. <laughs> And its its arms are like waving up and down, almost as though they're on uh, on a string.
4: <laughs> and that whole swordfish when when the mountain swordfish comes alive, yeah. I mean now all I could think of is Billy the Bass that uh, <laughs> that little gag gift, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wonder if the creators of that <laughs> watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a
0: uh, like this movie is so out there. Uh, like I think it, you know this movie is good for like uh, young teenagers because of uh, its weirdness. I don't know if uh, teenagers would get it today, but it certainly worked for for us. Now, there's a there is a, a guy in this movie. Uh he played he was in Night Court. I can't remember. Yeah, it's his Richard Mall. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> he plays this pretty uh funny character. Uh he he he's from um uh, William Katz, uh, or should I say Roger Cobb's uh, past, <laughs> uh, f- from his Vietnam days. And uh, so he comes back to basically haunt him as part of this. what this house does. And his role in it is really quite funny, I thought. Because, it's, well, first of all, he's over, an over-the-top kind of character. He's this badass soldier who just... seemingly loves to, you know, kill the enemy. Yeah. (laughs) And then when he comes back, he's like all kind of zombified, demon like, and uh, he's coming after, I don't know, it's just I thought, I I really enjoyed his part in the movie.
4: I always like him because he was in in Night Court, I love that that that's where you went right away, because that's, um, yeah, I always, I watched that all the time, and, and his character, Bull. Was was one of the highlights of the show. So yeah, anything I that, that I see him yeah. in, it gets gets tainted by that. Uh, yeah. My question, and because you were talking about how he comes back to haunt them, and I've actually been thinking a lot about that in preparation for the show. Mm-hmm. That I wonder if that's actually true, because. The house is is haunted by some kind of an, an entity, like you said, that tries to make its inhabitants go mad and and mm. kill themselves. So, is it actually his uh, his Vietnam buddy coming back, or is it the house conjuring um, something of a figure from his past and imbibing him with its own with its own shit? You know, I don't. Yeah. And I don't know. That's that's not answered. Um, I'm just you know getting all metaphysical on, no, on a honestly, silly movie. I but think... I really wonder if if that was was his buddy coming back to haunt him, or if it was the house's interpretation of something that was bothering Roger Cobb. You know, because yeah. obviously, it's some really bad memories. Um, some post traumatic stress, obviously, that yeah. that was compounded when his son went missing. So the house is kind of calling upon that. Yeah. So.
0: Honestly, I think honestly that uh, you're that it's probably the house uh, taking his memories and and his fears and bringing it to him as you know this presentation <laughs> that will uh, that will drive him to what it wants him to do, which is you know to kill himself. So that it can uh, pretty much consume him, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that would be my inter- interpretation, honestly. Because, uh, because, like, he does some pretty crazy things. Um, but then again, you know, William Cat, or Roger Cobb, he does some pretty intensive, crazy things, too. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like and this is before any of that with, uh, with Bull. Uh, this is, uh, I'm talking about, like, when he first realized there's something wrong with the house after the, uh, I'll just say the closet incident. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he goes full on batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he dresses
4: up in his, in his <laughs> uniform.
0: I love it. He's, like, he's running around the house and he's, like, doing, like, jumping in the air and doing a, you know, a somersault, landing into a somersault.
4: <laughs> and, then and, he, and he takes it outside.
0: Yeah, and he runs. He runs into George Went. <laughs> George Went is always there at the right time. Yeah, and and the more that he sees uh, Roger Cobb, the more he thinks that he, this guy is uh, is batshit crazy, and there's something seriously wrong. And he's not. He's not off the mark.
4: No, <laughs> really not.
0: But yeah, I love that uh, that connection that those two uh, actors had. Like, even though like we we discussed that this isn't really. Uh, you know, about character development or anything like that. Every character, uh, they just have their role to play for the movie and, and it usually becomes the butt of a joke. And, uh, I think, uh, Roger Cobb's insanity plays into that. And, uh, also his, uh, his, uh, relationship, which is brand new, with his, uh, new neighbor, George Wentz, who plays, uh, Harold Gort- Gorton. Um, that plays off on it too. <laughs> because, uh, he does become involved with the whole thing a little bit later, <laughs> but uh, I don't know that are dynamic together. I thought there was some chemistry there. Maybe
4: there was. There was. I thought there was quite a bit of chemistry between between those two, which I guess made me realize. Um, I think I think his ex wife's name is Sandy. When uh, you know between Roger and Sandy, there was so little, but but yeah. Harold and and Roger really really clicked, and I liked that, and I liked that it was kind of a a little bit of a buddy film. The closet scene again. The uh, <laughs> when when he involves Harold. That was that was actually hilarious. You know, yeah. that was a, a a really good moment of comedy. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I really liked.
0: Yeah, I love those parts, <laughs> both closet scenes, um, because they're just so over the top. But it's done in such a way that you can't help but laugh and uh, you know, kind of shake your head like that. That was, but. Honestly, like, that was really funny, you know, rather than, uh, rather than, it, it doesn't make you roll your eyes, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
4: Yeah.
0: You actually I genuinely true. laugh at it, so, or laugh with it, I should say, because, like I said, I, I'm pretty sure this movie is pretty aware that how ridiculous and over-the-top it is. It, it would have to be. If this was taken seriously, like, if they were all serious about this movie while they were making it, then... It, something was definitely lost in the translation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, what are your final thoughts on the film? Would you recommend it to somebody?
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if if you're looking for a horror comedy, definitely go back and check check this one out. You know, yeah. you you uh, you might not not be aware of it with so much that's that's come out. You know, with the whole scary movies and that before a horror comedy movie house is is really good it's really good at that um, me personally there's there's a couple hooks to, to house um, like the fact that, that Roger Cobb is a horror writer um, mm. I'm just I'm such a huge sucker for I think obvious reasons when when a movie involves a writer going through something I, yeah. it's kind of an automatic watch you know I'll sit down and I'll pay attention to it Um and then what, things that I didn't think about when it was, when it was released was um, like, like how his aunt killed, himself, killed herself and was mm-hmm. discovered. That was very Stephen King, Salem's Lot, when uh, his character went to the Marston house for mm-hmm. the first time. It seems like maybe that was, that was a thing. Yeah, and um, even though Peter Straub's novel Coco came out after this movie... That was that was a novel a lot about about the Vietnam War and how that, that affected a, a veteran. Um so there were a lot of things in house that really interested me above and yeah. beyond. Um for what it is, I'd give it a four star recommendation, I guess. Yeah. Um you know what? me personally felt like about about a three star.
0: Oh yeah? yeah? Uh I uh I'm kind of on board with that. I, uh, I this movie is just fun, um, and there, there's no real letdown. I don't think to this movie like how, like uh, uh, last week's <laughs> last week's film.
4: Yeah, um, this one holds up. So because you know, every time there's a reveal, it sort of ups the ante rather than yeah. taking away.
0: And it's it's always just fun and funny. we where uh, we're the other uh, last week's movie <laughs> there. Um, it was more of a, I don't know, more of a, like a, the big reveal, like, uh, you didn't see that coming, did you? But yeah. this one, you, you don't care, basically. <laughs> basically, you just want to see all the funny, insane shit that they can come up with and, and throw at you. Because exactly. they do it so well. Now, this movie actually had a few, uh, <laughs> a few, uh, like a part two and a part three, I think
4: oh i did if, I did sit down and start to watch part two uh, yeah
0: from it's my underst- awful. yeah, from my understanding, it has absolutely nothing to do with the uh with the first one. It's almost as though they just picked a movie at random and uh that maybe had a bit of a haunted feel to it and then you know stuck house two on it
4: <laughs> I'm not you know I honestly don't even remember if there was if there was an actual connection or not. Because it was just so bad so yeah. soon. Um, I want to say, but you know, sometimes I just make things up, that it could have been his son. I, I'm, I'm trying to say that it was his son, William Cat's son, after all these many years, something happens to him. But yeah. don't quote me on that.
0: Yeah, I'm not too sure. I'll have to watch it uh, if I ever. Oh God! <laughs> I
4: please don't. That <laughs> would be a very bad friend if I let you watch House Two. <laughs> yeah, don't do that.
0: I, I'm pretty sure I saw it a long time ago, but it it does not stick out in my mind at all, like uh, like the the movie we just talked about, House, the first yeah. one does. You know, and it's uh, well,
4: very much um, a sequel. You know, like in the in the '80s was a big time to have sequels, yeah. and and these days, you know, like the multiple movies. They're not quite like that. Um, last week you mentioned Insidious, and I like what what they do. You know, it's Chapter 2. It's Chapter 3. And it's not like they're just rehashing this material, but rather they have some more valid, legitimate things to say. Yeah, You know, there so there is another chapter to it. And uh, that's not the case when you see sequel numbers in the 80s. I think that's fair to say.
0: Yeah. Actually, the, a lot of the sequels from the 80s, would would just take the basic concept and run with it for their own movie. But what you see today are, uh, I think, you can probably blame the whole Marvel Universe and Disney (laughs) for this, because uh, what what you see happening now is a lot of uh, continuation, actual continuation of storylines. And not just the storylines, but you have the people who created and worked on the first film working on part four, too yeah uh because they're continuing on the story, and uh that's something that didn't happen in the eighties in the eighties somebody would retain the rights to to make a part two, and then they would just do whatever they wanted with it
4: yeah except for except for um I would say the two biggest exceptions and they stand out would be the back to the future trilogy oh, yeah. and the um Indiana Jones movies yeah you know? and then you know i mean you have people like Steven Spielberg George Lucas Robert Zemeckis involved with those so i mean that's that's some real stellar filmmakers there you know <laughs> yeah. they're probably actually the precursor i'd say to what we see yeah. today where it's it's another chapter it's a, it's another story to tell with those characters
0: actually uh, another one is jaws even though the uh the movie's kind of get worse as they go with the first one being like a an untouchable classic um, but as they go on, uh, as they get worse, <laughs> but the story it. does continue. Um, yeah, it does, and it doesn't really break away at all from uh from the past. So that's an that's another one. Even though you sort of have the same thing, I think Steven Spielberg was on those movies, like on board as at least a an, a producer until uh until the third one, maybe. But uh uh. But yeah, like they they pretty much stick to the story on that. So
4: yeah, because because the fourth one actually had the um, chief's wife. I remember that.
0: Yeah, and uh, those
4: were those were some god awful remakes.
0: I mean, oh, yeah, not well, remakes,
4: but but sequels though. Yeah, I, I really is, <laughs> the second mad. one isn't bad. The second one isn't bad, uh, but it's but not... they really do. The sharks got smaller, which yeah. <laughs> which I thought was was weird. And <laughs> like the movies the became more... kind of got you know. Yeah, was a little the, bit less, but they talked about it more. I don't know. Yeah,
0: and the movies also got more campy. Where the first yeah. one was like a, an actual story, um, you know, they get more campy as they go. And and, know,
4: and kind of the weird. part three was that big. It was Jaws three D. I remember that when it oh, came yeah, out. Yeah. That was one of the three D <laughs> ones.
0: So. Yeah, with those uh, uh, blue and and red glasses. Yep. <laughs>
4: like, yep
0: God. Well, I guess I'm wow. kind of going through the same thing now, but but we don't have those god awful blue and red glasses.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Where you know, sort of I like, do. I hate 3D movies because I have to wear those stupid glasses oh, over I my glasses. You know, I, I just keep intending to. Um, I want to take the lenses out and and put a like a little clip that I can put onto my my glasses <laughs> yeah. and flip yeah. down. So I'm going to work on that and uh, maybe I'll market that to our to our followers.
0: You should do that.
4: Put <laughs> it up on the site.
0: <laughs> I hate those. I hate those goddamn glasses anyway. Oh, they make they make so the yank. movie. They make the movie darker, and it's harder to see. And yeah. Unless the movie's really bright, which uh, the type of movies I usually go to see are pretty kind of dark, both symbolically and <laughs> lighting wise.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, I guess that does it for House, nineteen eighty six, and uh, thanks again, Michael.
4: It's my pleasure. And um, I guess I will talk to you soon when Haunted November continues. And until then, stay dark, my friends. Stay
0: dark, indeed. like Darkness Dwells well why don't you help out the show the easiest way to do so is to sign on to your iTunes account rate and review the Darkness Dwells podcast and we will forever forever love you for it and as always thank you for listening Okay, on to the second part of the show, where uh, we play part one of the Canterville Ghost, by written by Oscar Wilde, and uh, read to you uh, by the good folks over at LibriVox, and the individual himself who reads, reads it is David Barnes. So, uh, just a few little things first before we move on into uh, the story. Um, Canterville Ghost as I said it was uh, <coughs> excuse me it was written by uh Oscar Wilde and apparently it was the first the first of his stories to be published um the story itself is a, a bit of a comedy if not a complete comedy but it's uh, sort of goes with the theme of sort of silly haunted house stories that we're uh covering this uh this month uh, there's some more serious movies coming that we'll be looking at, but the overall theme is, uh, you know, fun. And uh, the story is about a family who moves to a castle haunted by the ghost of a dead nobleman who killed his wife and was then starved to death by her brothers. So, um the Canterville ghost uh, was of an old Canterville chase, uh, which has all the uh, accoutrements of a traditional haunted house. Uh, descriptions of the wainscoting, the library paneling or paneled in in black oak and the armor in the hallway characterize the gothic setting and i'm getting this uh from wikipedia of course uh so it's a very gothic story they're trying to say and uh and so what you get is uh you have this ghost who's uh I don't know what his intentions are exactly, but a new family moves in, and uh, he tries to haunt them, and I'm pretty sure he fails, but I guess we'll see. So how about we head into that right now. So here we present The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde, read to you
3: by David Burns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO FIND OUT HOW YOU CAN VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE CANTERVILLE GHOST BY OSCAR WILDE CHAPTER One. When Mr. Hiram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, who was a man of the most punctilious honour, had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. "'We have not cared to live in the place ourselves,' said Lord Canterville, "'since my grand-aunt, the Dowager Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered.' by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. And I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family, as well as by the rector of the parish, the Reverend Augustus Dampier, who is a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. After the unfortunate accident to the Duchess, "'and none of our younger servants would stay with us, "'and Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night, "'in consequence of the mysterious noises "'that came from the corridor and the library.' "'My lord,' answered the minister, "'I will take the furniture and the ghost at a valuation. "'I've come from a modern country "'where we have everything that money can buy.' and with all our spry young fellows painting the old world red and carrying off your best actors and prima donnas i reckon that if there were such a thing as a ghost in europe we'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums or on the road as a show i fear that the ghost exists said lord canterville smiling "'though it may have resisted the overtures of your enterprising impresarios. "'It has been well known for three centuries, since 1584, in fact, "'and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family.' "'Well, so does the family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. "'But there is no such thing, sir, as a ghost.' "'and I guess the laws of nature are not going to be suspended for the British aristocracy.' "'You are certainly very natural in America,' answered Lord Canterville, "'who didn't quite understand Mr. Otis's last observation. "'And if you don't mind a ghost in the house, it's all right. "'Only you must remember I warned you.' "'A few weeks after this the purchase was concluded.' and at the close of the season the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Miss Lucretia R. Tappan of West 53rd Street had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome, middle-aged woman with fine eyes and a superb profile. Many American ladies, on leaving their native land, adopt an appearance of chronic ill health under the impression that it is a form of European refinement. But Mrs. Otis had never fallen into this error. She had a magnificent constitution, and a really wonderful amount of animal spirits. Indeed, in many respects she was quite English, and was an excellent example of the fact that we have really everything in common with America nowadays—except, of course, language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism which he never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man who had qualified himself for American diplomacy by leading the German at the Newport Casino for three successive seasons, and even in London was well known as an excellent dancer. Gardenia's and the peerage were his only weaknesses. Otherwise he was extremely sensible. Miss Virginia E. Otis was a little girl of fifteen, lithe and lovely as a fawn, with a fine freedom in her large blue eyes. She was a wonderful Amazon, and had once raced Old Lord Bilton on her pony twice round the park, winning by a length and a half just in front of the Achilles statue, to the huge delight of the young Duke of Cheshire, who proposed for her on the spot and was sent back to Eton that very night by his guardian in floods of tears. After Virginia came the twins, who were usually called the Star and Stripes, as they were always getting swished. They were delightful boys, and with the exception of the worthy minister, the only true Republicans of the family. As Canterville Chase is seven miles from Ascot, the nearest railway station, Mr. Otis had telegraphed for a wagonette to meet them, and they started on their drive in high spirits. It was a lovely July evening, and the air was delicate with the scent of the pine-woods. Now and then they heard a wood-pigeon brooding over its own sweet voice, or saw, deep in the rustling fern, the burnished breast of the pheasant. Little squirrels peered at them from the beech-trees as they went by and the rabbits scudded away through the brushwood and over the mossy knolls, with their white tails in the air. As they entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky became suddenly overcast with clouds. A curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere. A great flight of rooks passed silently over their heads, and before they reached the house some big drops of rain had fallen. Standing on the steps to receive them was an old woman, neatly dressed in black silk, with a white cap and apron. This was Mrs. Omney, the housekeeper, whom Mrs. Otis, at Lady Canterville's earnest request, had consented to keep in her former position. She made them each a low curtsy as they alighted, and said in a quaint old-fashioned manner, "'I bid you welcome to Canterville Chase.' following her they passed through the fine tudor hall into the library a long low room panelled in black oak at the end of which was a large stained-glass window here they found tea laid out for them and after taking off their wraps they sat down and began to look around, while mrs omni waited on them Suddenly Mrs. Otis caught sight of a dull red stain on the floor just by the fireplace, and, quite unconscious of what it really signified, said to Mrs. Omney, "'I'm afraid something has been spilt there.' "'Yes, madam,' replied the old housekeeper, in a low voice. "'Blood has been spilt on that spot.' "'How horrid!' cried Mrs. Otis, I don't care at all for bloodstains in a sitting-room. It must be removed at once. The old woman smiled, and answered in the same low, mysterious voice, It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that very spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years— and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances his body has never been discovered but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase the blood-stain has been much admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed that's all nonsense cried washington otis pinkerton's champion stain remover and paragon detergent will clean it up in no time and before the terrified housekeeper could interfere he'd fallen upon his knees and was rapidly scouring the floor with a small stick of what looked like a black cosmetic. In a few moments no trace of the blood-stain could be seen. "'I knew Pinkerton would do it!' he exclaimed triumphantly, as he looked around at his admiring family. But no sooner had he said these words than a terrible flash of lightning lit up the sombre room, a fearful peal of thunder made them all start to their feet, and Mrs. Omney fainted. "'What a monstrous climate!' said the American minister calmly, as he lit a long cheroot. "'I guess the old country is so overpopulated that they've not enough decent weather for everybody.' I've always been of opinion that emigration is the only thing for England.' "'My dear Hiram,' cried Mrs. Otis, "'what can we do with a woman who faints?' "'Charge it to her like breakages,' answered the minister. "'She won't faint after that.' And in a few moments Mrs. Omney certainly came to. There was no doubt, however, that she was extremely upset— and she sternly warned Mr. Otis to beware of some trouble coming to the house. "'I've seen things with my own eyes, sir,' she said, "'that would make any Christian's hair stand on end, "'and many and many a night I have not closed my eyes in sleep "'for the awful things that are done here.' Mr. Otis, however, and his wife warmly assured the honest soul "'that they were not afraid of ghosts,' and after invoking the blessings of Providence on her new master and mistress, and making arrangements for an increase of salary, the old housekeeper tottered off to her own room. Chapter 2 The storm raged fiercely all that night, but nothing of particular note occurred. The next morning, however, when they came down to breakfast, they found the terrible stain of blood once again on the floor. "'I don't think it can be the fault of the Paragon detergent,' said Washington, "'for I've tried it with everything. It must be the ghost.' He accordingly rubbed out the stain a second time, but the second morning it appeared again. The third morning also it was there— though the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis himself, and the key carried upstairs. The whole family were now quite interested. Mr. Otis began to suspect that he'd been too dogmatic in his denial of the existence of ghosts. Mrs. Otis expressed her intention of joining the Physical Society, and Washington prepared a long letter to Messrs. Myers and Podmore on the subject of the permanence of sanguineous stains when connected with crime. That night all doubts about the objective existence of Phantasmata were removed for ever. The day had been warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening the whole family went out to drive. They did not return home till nine o'clock when they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, so there were not even those primary conditions of receptive expectations which so often precede the presentation of physical phenomena. The subjects discussed, as I have since learnt from Mr. Otis, were merely such as form the ordinary conversation of cultured Americans of the better class such as the immense superiority of Miss Fanny Davenport over Sarah Bernhardt as an actress, the difficulty of obtaining green corn, buckwheat cakes, and hominy, even in the best English houses, the importance of Boston in the development of the world soul, the advantages of the baggage-check system in railway travelling, and the sweetness of the New York accent as compared to the London drawl. No mention at all was made of the supernatural, nor was Sir Simon de Canterville alluded to in any way. At eleven o'clock the family retired, and by half-past all the lights were out. Some time after Mr. Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal, and seemed to be coming nearer every moment. He got up at once, struck a match, and looked at the time. It was exactly one o'clock. He was quite calm, and felt his pulse, which was not at all feverish. The strange noise still continued, and with it he heard distinctly the sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, took a small oblong file out of his dressing-case, and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw, in the one moonlight, an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were as red as burning coals, long grey hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils, his garments, which were of antique cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty gyves. "'My dear sir,' said Mr. Otis, "'I really must insist on your oiling those chains, "'and I've brought you for that purpose "'a small bottle of the Tammany Rising Sun Lubricator. "'It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, "'and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper "'from some of our most eminent native divines. "'I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles.' "'and will be happy to supply you with more, should you require it.' "'With these words the United States Minister laid the bottle down on a marble table, "'and, closing his door, retired to rest. "'For a moment the Canterville Ghost stood quite motionless in natural indignation,' Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, uttering low groans and emitting a ghastly green light. Just however, as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, a door was flung open, two little white-robed figures appeared, and a large pillow whizzed past his head. There was evidently no time to be lost, so, hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape, he vanished through the wainscoting, and the house became quite quiet. On reaching a small secret chamber in the west wing, he leaned up against a moonbeam to recover his breath, and began to try and realise his position. Never. In a brilliant and uninterrupted career of three hundred years had he been so grossly insulted. He thought of the dowager-duchess, whom he'd frightened into a fit as she stood before the glass in her lace and diamonds, of the four housemaids who'd gone into hysterics when he merely grinned at them through the curtain on one of the spare bedrooms, of the rector of the parish, whose candle he'd blown out as he was coming late one night from the library, and who'd been under the care of Sir William Gull ever since, a perfect martyr to nervous disorders, and of old Madame de Tourmiac, who, having wakened up one morning early and seen a skeleton seated in an armchair by the fire reading her diary, had been confined to her bed for six weeks with an attack of brain-fever and on her recovery had become reconciled to the church, and broken off her connection with that notorious sceptic, Monsieur de Voltaire. He remembered the terrible night when the wicked Lord Canterville was found choking in his dressing-room, with the knave of diamonds halfway down his throat, and confessed just before he died that he'd cheated Charles James Fox out of fifty thousand pounds at Crockford's by means of that very card, and swore that the ghost had made him swallow it. All his great achievements came back to him again, from the butler who'd shot himself in the pantry because he'd seen a green hand tapping at the window-pane, to the beautiful Lady Stutfield who was always obliged to wear a black velvet band around her throat to hide the mark of five fingers burnt upon her white skin, and who drowned herself at last in the carp-pond at the end of the King's Walk. With the enthusiastic egotism of the true artist, he went over his most celebrated performances and smiled bitterly to himself as he recalled to mind his last appearance as Red Reuben or The Strangled Babe, his debut as Gaunt Gibeon, the bloodsucker of Bexley Moor, and the furore he'd excited one lovely June evening by merely playing ninepins with his own bones upon the lawn-tennis-ground and after all this some wretched modern Americans were to come and offer him the rising sun lubricator and throw pillows at his head. It was quite unbearable. Besides, no ghost in history had ever been treated in this manner. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance, and remained till daylight in an attitude of deep thought. CHAPTER three. The next morning, when the Otis family met at breakfast, they discussed the ghost at some length. The United States minister was naturally a little annoyed to find that his present had not been accepted. "'I have no wish,' he said, "'to do the ghost any personal injury.' "'and I must say that, considering the length of time he's been in the house, "'I don't think it is at all polite to throw pillows at him.' "'A very just remark, at which, I'm sorry to say, the twins burst into shouts of laughter. "'Upon the other hand,' he continued, "'if he really declines to use the rising sun lubricator, "'we shall have to take his chains from him.' It would be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on outside the bedrooms. For the rest of the week, however, they were undisturbed, the only thing that excited any attention being the continual renewal of the bloodstain on the library floor. This certainly was very strange, as the door was always locked at night by Mr. Otis, and the windows kept closely barred. The chameleon-like colour, also, of the stain, excited a good deal of comment. Some mornings it was a dull, almost Indian red. Then it would be vermilion, then a rich purple. And once, when they came down for family prayers, according to the simple rites of the Free American Reformed Episcopalian Church, they found it a bright emerald green. These kaleidoscopic changes naturally amused the party very much, and bets on the subject were freely made every evening. The only person who did not enter into the joke was little Virginia, who, for some unexplained reason, was always a good deal distressed at the sight of the blood-stain, and very nearly cried the morning it was emerald green. THE SECOND APPEARANCE OF THE GHOST WAS ON SUNDAY NIGHT. SHORTLY AFTER THEY'D GONE TO BED THEY WERE SUDDENLY ALARMED BY A FEARFUL CRASH IN THE HALL. RUSHING DOWNSTAIRS THEY FOUND THAT A LARGE SUIT OF OLD ARMOUR HAD BECOME DETACHED FROM ITS STAND AND HAD FALLEN ON THE STONE FLOOR while seated in a high-backed chair was the Canterville Ghost, rubbing his knees with an expression of acute agony on his face. The twins, having brought their pea-shooters with them, at once discharged two pellets on him, with that accuracy of aim which can only be attained by long and careful practice on a writing-master, while the United States Minister covered him with his revolver, and called upon him, in accordance with Californian etiquette, to hold up his hands. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage, and swept through them like a mist, extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed, and so leaving them all in total darkness. On reaching the top of the staircase he recovered himself, and determined to give his celebrated peal of demoniac laughter. This he had on more than one occasion found extremely useful. It was said to have turned Lord Raker's wig grey in a single night, and had certainly made three of Lady Canterville's French governesses give warning before their month was up. He accordingly laughed his most horrible laugh till the old vaulted roof rang and rang again but hardly had the fearful echo died away when a door opened and mrs otis came out in a light blue dressing gown i am afraid you are far from well she said and i've brought you a bottle of dr dobell's tincture if it is indigestion you will find it a most excellent remedy the ghost glared at her in fury and began at once to make preparations for turning himself into a large black dog, an accomplishment for which he was justly renowned, and to which the family doctor always attributed the permanent idiocy of Lord Canterville's uncle, the Honourable Thomas Horton. The sound of approaching footsteps, however, made him hesitate in his fell purpose, so he contented himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent and vanished with a deep churchyard groan, just as the twins came up to him. On reaching his room he entirely broke down, and became a prey to the most violent agitation. The vulgarity of the twins, and the gross materialism of Mrs. Otis, were naturally extremely annoying, but what really distressed him most was that he had been unable to wear the suit of mail. He'd hoped that even modern Americans would be thrilled by the sight of a spectre in armour, if for no more sensible reason, at least out of respect for their natural poet Longfellow, over whose graceful and attractive poetry he himself had whiled away many a weary hour when the Cantervilles were up in town. Besides, it was his own suit. He had worn it with great success at the Kenilworth Tournament, and had been highly complimented on it by no less a person than the Virgin Queen herself. Yet when he had put it on, he had been completely overpowered by the weight of the huge breastplate and steel cask, and had fallen heavily on the stone pavement, barking both his knees severely, and bruising the knuckles of his right hand. For some days after this he was extremely ill, and hardly stirred out of his room at all, except to keep the bloodstain in proper repair. However, by taking great care of himself he recovered, and resolved to make a third attempt to frighten the United States Minister and his family. He selected Friday, august the seventeenth, for his appearance, and spent most of that day in looking over his wardrobe ultimately deciding in favour of a large, slouched hat with a red feather, a winding-sheet frilled at the wrists and neck, and a rusty dagger. Towards evening a violent storm of rain came on, and the wind was so high that all the windows and doors in the old house shook and rattled. In fact, it was just such weather as he loved. His plan of action was this. He was to make his way quietly to Washington Otis's room, gibber at him from the foot of the bed, and stab himself three times in the throat to the sound of low music. He bore Washington a great grudge, being quite aware that it was he who was in the habit of removing the famous Canterville blood-stain by means of Pinkerton's Paragon detergent. Having reduced the reckless and foolhardy youth to a condition of abject terror, he was then to proceed to the room occupied by the United States minister and his wife, and there to place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead, while he hissed into her trembling husband's ear the awful secrets of the charnel-house. With regard to little Virginia, he had not quite made up his mind— She had never insulted him in any way, and was pretty and gentle. A few hollow groans from the wardrobe, he thought, would be more than sufficient, or if that failed to wake her, he might grabble at the counterpane with palsy-twitching fingers. As for the twins, he was quite determined to teach them a lesson. The first thing to be done was, of course, to sit upon their chests— so as to produce the sensation of nightmare. Then, as their beds were quite close to each other, to stand between them in the form of a green, icy, cold corpse, till they became paralysed with fear, and finally to throw off the winding-sheet and crawl around the room with white bleached bones and one rolling eyeball, in the character of dumb Daniel or the suicide skeleton a role in which he had on more than one occasion produced a great effect, and which he considered quite equal to his famous part of Martin the Maniac, or The Masked Mystery. At half-past ten he heard the family going to bed. For some time he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins, who, with the light-hearted gaiety of schoolboys, were evidently amusing themselves before they retired to rest. But at a quarter-past eleven all was still, and as midnight sounded he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window-panes, the raven croaked from the old yew-tree, and the wind wandered moaning round the house like a lost soul. But the Otis family slept unconscious of their doom, and high above the rain and storm he could hear the steady snoring of the Minister for the United States. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting, with an evil smile on his cruel wrinkled mouth, and the moon hid her face in a cloud as he stole past the great oriel window, Where his own arms and those of his murdered wife were blazoned in azure and gold. On and on he glided, like an evil shadow. The very darkness seemed to loathe him as he passed. Once he thought he heard something call, and stopped— "'but it was only the baying of a dog from the red farm. "'And he went on, muttering strange seventeenth-century curses "'and ever and anon brandishing the rusty dagger in the midnight air. "'Finally he reached the corner of the passage "'that led to luckless Washington's room. "'For a moment he paused there, the wind blowing his long grey locks about his head, and twisting into grotesque and fantastic folds the nameless horror of the dead man's shroud. Then the clock struck the quarter, and he felt the time was come. He chuckled to himself and turned the corner, but no sooner had he done so than, with a piteous wail of terror, he fell back, and hid his blanched face in his long bony hands. Right in front of him was standing a horrible spectre, motionless as a carven image, and monstrous as a madman's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white, and hideous laughter seemed to have writhed its features into an eternal grin. From the eyes streamed rays of scarlet light, The mouth was a wide well of fire, And a hideous garment, like to his own, Swathed with its silent snows the titan form. On its breast was a placard, With strange writing in antique characters, Some scroll of shame, it seemed, Some record of wild sins, Some awful calendar of crime and with its right hand it bore aloft a falchion of gleaming steel. Never having seen a ghost before, he naturally was terribly frightened, and after a second hasty glance at the awful phantom he fled back to his room, tripping up in his long winding-sheet as he sped down the corridor and finally dropping the rusty dagger into the minister's jack-boots, where it was found in the morning by the butler. Once in the privacy of his own apartment he flung himself down on a small pallet-bed and hid his face under the clothes.' After a time, however, the brave old Canterville spirit asserted itself, and he determined to go and speak to the other ghost as soon as it was daylight. Accordingly, just as the dawn was touching the hills with silver, he turned towards the spot where he'd first laid eyes on the grisly phantom, feeling that, after all, two ghosts were better than one and that by the aid of his new friend he might safely grapple with the twins. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Something had evidently happened to the spectre, for the light had entirely faded from its hollow eyes, the gleaming falchion had fallen from its hand, and it was leaning up against the wall in a strained and uncomfortable attitude, He rushed forward and seized it in his arms, when, to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled onto the floor, the body assumed a recumbent posture, and he found himself clasping a white dimity bed-curtain, with a sweeping-brush, a kitchen-cleaver, and a hollow turnip lying at his feet. Unable to understand this curious transformation, he clutched the placard with feverish haste, and there— In the grey morning light he read these fearful words. Ye Otis ghost, ye only true and original spook, Beware of ye imitations, all others are counterfeit. The whole thing flashed across him. He had been tricked, foiled, and outwitted. The old Canterville look came into his eyes. He ground his toothless gums together, and, raising his withered hands high above his head, swore according to the picturesque phraseology of the antique school that, when Chanticleer had sounded twice his merry horn, deeds of blood would be wrought, and murder walk abroad with silent feet. Hardly had he finished this awful oath when, from the red-tiled roof of a distant homestead, a cock crew. He laughed a long, low, bitter laugh, and waited. Hour after hour he waited, but the cock, for some strange reason, did not crow again. Finally, at half-past seven, the arrival of the housemaids made him give up his fearful vigil and he stalked back to his room, thinking of his vain oath and baffled purpose. There he consulted several books of ancient chivalry, of which he was exceedingly fond, and found that, on every occasion on which this oath had been used, Chanticleer had always crowed a second time. Perdition! Seize the naughty fowl! he muttered i have seen the day when with my stout spear i would have run him through the gorge and made him crow for me and twere in death he then retired to a comfortable lead coffin and stayed there till evening end of chapter 3
4: <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Darkness Dwells episode 31 and the continuation of Haunted November. Uh, If you want to help out the show, really the best way to do so is to log on to your iTunes account or even your Stitcher account. Uh, Subscribe, rate, and uh, leave a review. That would be greatly appreciated. Um, If you want to contact the show, you can do so very easily. Uh, Email is... Uh, dwells 74 at gmail.com uh, there's a twitter feed and that is at darkdweller74 there is a, a website you can visit which is uh, wheredarknessdwells.com and you can come and join us on the facebook group or not group well we do it there is a facebook group it's only like uh, 20 people, <laughs> and nobody really talks there. But please uh, do a search, find the group, and uh, join it. But uh, in the meantime, you can also uh, like the Darkness Dwells uh, Facebook page, which is at slash where darkness dwells. And uh, remember to check out uh, Audible. At uh, wwwaudibletrial audibletrial. or sorry. com. dwells to get your free membership. All right, so we will see you again next week. Good night and,
4: and sweet, sweet dreams. dreams.
0: Step in time, steady until the end We will be fine, all will be mine Till the arachna descends Sleazy, slimy, creep up behind me I know she'll win in the end Until that day, here I stay blindly Here comes
2: the black spider Ha, ha, ha.